0: Welcome to Paranormal the New Normal. I am your host, Jeremy Bryant, as always. And my guest today has a very unique story, which I am dying to hear, and pun not intended on that, but (laughs) today my guest is
1: Kellen Fukiger. Hi, thank you for having me here. Grateful to have the opportunity to talk about something that a lot of us never think about, you know? yeah
0: you're yeah it's definitely not something i've really put too much thought into but since hearing stories like yours lately i've definitely been putting thought into it somewhat
1: yeah it's never something you plan to have happen right but it's uh, one of those things basically so why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself before
0: we get into your story
1: okay great um i had a long career in the energy business 30 years and Lots of career positions, including sea level stuff in the U.S. and Canada, electricity, utilities, deregulation, some government stuff, some private industry stuff. In 2007, after 30 years in that business, I left that industry entirely and uh, I had a a sort of a really dramatic departure because of some struggles going on in my own life and just left it entirely and uh, started over. I started life trying to not trying creating a coaching practice. I also became an author. So since 2007, I've written like 16 books and I built a coaching practice and was going along well after this dramatic, uh, I, I call it a divine intervention, but it's not the same. It was, but it's not the same as the NDE we're talking about. Uh, after going along, building that business and doing and it was based on, um, you know, a connection with spirit and it just kind of hope and spirit based coaching but that's what i was doing and i was doing it well and i had a good practice for about 11 years 11 years after that first event which was not an nde but was a dramatic thing i ha- i did i uh, got ill and became uh, sick and went to the hospital and died and that's what we'll talk about in 2018 so this month is a four-year anniversary it happened on june 5th uh 2018 since then, um, my focus hasn't changed. I built my coaching practice more. I wrote a couple of books about the experience and some others since then, so I've written a total of 16. It didn't change my focus in terms of my commitment to our divine nature and doing good, adding good to the world, which is really the focus that I have, but it certainly strengthened it and gave me a sense of perspective and uh, you know, an experience that I never imagined in any world that I would have. I'd heard about such things before. So I'm a coach. I'm a people encourager. I came from an executive career today. I focus on helping people who are committed to ending addiction to mediocrity and are committed to being the best that they can be. Oh, I like that. That's a, that's a good thing. Cause I
0: mean, no one should be mediocre. Everybody should be the best that they can at what they want to do. And very few are. Yes, and that's—I mean, I myself am trying to become past the mediocre podcaster stage to become a world-famous podcaster. But we'll get there someday, hopefully. It's still rare. Of
1: course, you will. I have every confidence.
0: Yeah, it's—it's it's still a new thing, so it grows. But already getting sponsorships, somewhat, so it, it's starting to start.
1: Good on you. Oh, thank you for doing what you do. I love, you know, he told me, you blew me away to start with. Uh, I said, oh, got you in the podcasting business. He said, oh, I have five. I'm like, okay, because podcasting's really a labor of love. I mean, you, you might get sponsorships and stuff, but for a large part, it's, a, it's something that you're doing out of passion. And uh, I use the phrase, add good to the world, you know, trying to help people understand things, encourage things, learn things. And that sort of thing. And so I really appreciate the work you're doing.
0: I Thank you. I appreciate being appreciated. But it's, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's 100% labor of love. My listeners do know I love this podcast. And I love talking about paranormal supernatural things. And your experience is a supernatural thing a 100% because it's of a divine nature in a way, mm-hmm. as, as you said. So why don't you tell us about that fateful event in 2018?
1: Okay, well, after I'd been working on my coaching business, um, you know, to, to, do it, to do it justice, it might be best if I told what happened in 2007, even though that wasn't the NDE, because that kind of set it up. And if then, is you, that okay? Yeah, yeah, if you want to. I just didn't want to push anything you didn't no, want to talk no, about. No, no, nothing's off the table. One of the things I wrote after I got changed as i wrote a book about myself called tightrope of depression my dark my journey from darkness despair and death to light love and life and i you know told a lot of stories and open and transparent stuff in there which talks about the battles that i'd had i i was uh raised in an abusive home physically abusive under the guise of religion and i got a lot of discipline that today would be felony child abuse and uh, you know we would have been removed i would have been removed from the home and what it did to me is I, I came away with a certainty that I wasn't good enough and that I never would be and that my entire focus of my adult life needed to be proving to my mom that I was okay and getting back into her good graces and you'd think that you know when you leave home you'd get out of that but I didn't uh, because it was sort of religion based and in order to be a good boy and all the rest I had to do this I had to be what she wanted so I uh, It's funny because I had the juxtaposition of not being good enough, but at the same time, I was blessed with a lot of brains and I had capabilities. So I would create successful career things and make good money, and then I would sabotage them because I didn't deserve this. And I did that over and over again, literally for decades. I never talked to anyone. I never got any help. I did the stupidest thing. I kept it all closed inside, and that went on for 35 years. So, from the time I left home at seventeen until I was fifty-two, which was two thousand seven, which is what we're going to talk about, the, the first part, um, <clears throat> I lived a, life, a roller coaster life of creating huge success, and then uh, sabotaging it, and then even bigger success and sabotaging and bigger success, and by success I mean high-powered corporate positions, C-suite positions, and in two thousand seven, uh, by the, by two thousand seven. <laughs> Three things were true. Number one, I was, had been married and divorced three times. I had 10 kids and four of them were living with me as teenagers and three were grown up and married and three were living with, it's embarrassing to say, but one of my exes. And I was making so much money that my $3,000 a week cocaine habit didn't matter. So I was a total wreck. I was one of those movie things like on the outside it's like whoa and behind the scenes it was a disaster battleground a mess i came home from work one day in august of 2007 on a friday night i was getting ready to go out and party for the weekend and the four kids that were with me were teenagers and so they were not home a lot anyway and took care of themselves it's like yeah whatever and Before I went out to party, I had this urge to turn on the television. Now, that doesn't sound like anything, except I didn't watch TV. And the funny part was, I picked up the remote and I looked at it and I realized I didn't know how to turn it on. Uh, I'd had the electronics guys come and put in the coolest stuff you could buy because when you make a lot of money, you do that, right? But I looked at it and I'm like, ah, I don't know how to turn this on. So I asked. When my kids, my 16 year old daughter, you know, if she punched some buttons and threw the remote at me, like dip, dip weed and stomped out, it landed on a program that I'd never heard of, but I'd never heard of any of them because I literally was not a TV watcher and it was called Intervention. Now, if that's a reality TV show about, yeah. yeah, people that stage interventions for busted loved ones, but I'd never heard of it, so I'm like, what? And the protagonist was a high ranking executive with a cocaine problem, right? So I watched about 10 minutes of this and I'm like, yeah, screw this. I'm not watching it. So I turned it off and went and did some other stuff for a few minutes. And then I was gonna go out. And I just was compelled to turn the TV back on. So I this time I knew how. I turned it on and that program started over. And no, I don't have a DVR. I don't have a recording device. No, it wasn't on the schedule. And no, it can't do that. I, I understand, but it did. And I'm like, Crap, I guess I'm supposed to watch this. So it freaked me out. So I sat down and watched it and it went really bad. The guy yelled at his relatives, swore he didn't have a problem, stomped out, and it went poorly. So I, it freaked me out enough that I didn't go out. I went to bed. And uh, when I went to bed, I went to hell. Now what I mean by that is I went somewhere. I don't know where it was, but it felt out of body. So I'm in a big dark theater and I, I could hear voices and scenes were playing on the stage and they were scenes from my life but not flashing before my eyes but slowly and it was focused on suffering and it started with suffering that had been inflicted on me as a kid abuse and everything but also all the suffering i had inflicted on others as an addict and as a terrible marriage partner and just all this stuff and The thread of suffering was so consistent and intense that I don't possess the language to describe the intensity of the experience of watching that, and it went on for a long time. After a long time, there was a voice that simply said, it is enough, and it wasn't yelling or loud, it just, it is enough. I woke up, and the sun was shining in the window, which was weird, because the windows faced west. So I got up and realized it was 5 o'clock Saturday afternoon. So I'd been somewhere for nearly 18 hours. And I got up and realized, okay, I've been invited to change. I have no idea how to do this. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'd never talked to a counselor or anything in all my years. I'm 52 years old. But what I knew is, okay, something has to change. We're done. So I got up and I threw away thousand dollars worth of stuff that I had laying around and I quit cold turkey that day, 3000 bucks a week to zero in one day. So that got me sober. It didn't do anything with the stuff, the purpose, the depression, the self-loathing, the negativity that got me where I was. And that was the other shoe that fell two weeks later. So Monday I went back to work and sober stone cold sober like holy crap and i I used to get free stuff in the job that i had because i had a high-ranking position and so ceos and stuff from other companies would gift me things tickets to this expensive bottles of booze and like i needed more of that and because people wanted to be nice to me whatever not bribes but just free stuff and so one of the things i got was a pair of tickets to see a yo-yo ma concert now, if you know classical music, you know who that is. And if you don't, that's fine. But in classical world, I was like, oh, ah! so I'm like, okay, this is cool. And I thought, oh man, I'm single. I don't have anybody to take it. would be a terrible shame to waste this other ticket. So I asked in the groups that I managed who likes classical music. And some lady in one of the groups said, well, I do. And I said, okay, have I ever given you anything before? Because I gave away stuff all the time. And she said, no, I said, okay, fine. See you there. So I gave her the ticket. We met at the venue the concert was spectacular and halfway through they got to know i'm two weeks now two weeks stone cold sober so i'm at the concert halfway through i had this feeling come over me that i recognized from two weeks before and a voice said to me you need to marry this woman and i said you're insane I don't know if she has a boyfriend. She can have me arrested for harassment. She works in one of my groups and I've screwed this up three times already. I have, there's no way. I've been divorced three times and some other messes. It's not happening. So later that night we were backstage because of course they were backstage passes also. And the voice came back and said, yeah, comma, and you need to tell her tonight and i just went crazy i said no i I, you know i that's just not happening and so i argued but you don't win those arguments so i did and it went about like you would have expected are you out of your mind she didn't have a boyfriend and she didn't call the cops so yay for two things (laughs) but she told me are you insane what are you talking about like i don't we don't even like no and so um within the next two weeks she had her own set of experiences and so two weeks later She resigned her position that she'd had for many years. She was a project manager. She had a good career. I walked away from millions of dollars of contracts and we walked off into the sunset together. Uh, And about six months ago, we celebrated our 14th wedding anniversary. Now, the reason that's interesting in the setup for the other thing is, number one, it's just amazing. But number two, she was literally the angel that was sent to help me to learn how to be a person to learn how to talk to somebody, learn how to have a friend, to be a friend. Like I'd never done, I didn't know anything about that. I'd never told the truth in any relationship to myself or anyone else. And that seemed, might seem strange being married and divorced three times. And one of the times was for many years, like 15 years. But I wasn't, I didn't know how to have a regular friendship, relationship, anything. So she was relentless in finding me people to talk to and, you know, helping me do, deal with, this depression and this whole mess that I'd made out of life. And I've asked her a thousand times, like what on earth possessed you to walk off into the sunset with a drug addict? I mean, nobody knew, but they all knew, right? The rumors. And she said, you know, I don't know. I just knew to the core of my soul, it was the right thing to do. So that was the setup. And so for the next 10 years, but the first three or four, we got to know each other and all that sort of stuff. But we, we we, just did that, and she helped me build this coaching practice. Today, she's my business partner. She runs all of her back-end stuff, does all the software, all the online things, like ClickFunnels and all of that business. Yeah. So she was that, – that was the setup. And so for 10 years, 11 years, we built this coaching practice. 11 years later, uh, it's 2018 now, we decided to – go on a cruise. We'd never been on a cruise before. Hadn't been something either one of us had ever done. So we went to the Baltic sea and it was a 10 day cruise. At the end of the cruise, I got sick and we're in Oslo, Norway and uh, on Monday, and that was day one and the day numbers will matter here later. And then we flew to Amsterdam day two and flew home on Tuesday, which was day two. I was really sick on the plane, fever and everything. And today, if I was that sick, they'd thrown you out the plane. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, thank God it wasn't a couple years later. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I would have been out the window, right? And then, those days, they just brought you ice and took care of you, right? Anyway, so we got home on Tuesday night, and it turns out I wasn't contagious anyway, but uh, I didn't go to the... In Can- we live in Canada, we're dual national US and Canada, but we were in Canada at the time. I didn't go to the walk-in clinic on Wednesday or Thursday. I kept thinking it was gonna get better, but it didn't. It got worse and worse. Finally, on Friday, which was day five, I went to the walk-in clinic and there was a sign in the clinic that I knew was there, because I'd been there before. It was one in the neighborhood that said, if you, know, if you have a cough or something, let the nurse know. So I sent my wife, oh, you know, I didn't tell you that amazing, miraculous thing about my wife. Her name is Joy. Hmm. Like, you can't make this stuff up. No, you you can't. You can't. (laughs) All right. So Joy went into the clinic and told the nurse I had a cough, and she came out and took a look at me. She took one look at me and said, you can't come in here. You have to go to ER. There's nothing we can do for you here. Get out of here. Not good. So we drove to the the emergency room uh, and... You know, you go to Emerge, might be an hour or two or even three if they're busy and all that sort of stuff. Hi there. Uh, You know, depending on how busy they are. So I expected to be there a while. And in 10 minutes, I was in a private room. I didn't even know they had private rooms in emergency. The only thing I'd ever seen was those curtain partitions, right? Yeah. In a private room with a door. Mike. oh, man, and then 10 minutes later, the doctor's in there, and they're all over me, and I'm like, holy crap, this is not good, so they started doing tests, and x-rays, and MRIs, and all this stuff, and pretty soon, they came back, and said, yeah, we're going to admit you in the hospital, we don't know what's wrong, but you're you're going, you're coming here, so I sent Joy home, because we have dogs, and cats, and things, and I said, we'll come back tomorrow, Saturday morning, and we'll figure out, you know, what's going on, whatever, so <clears throat> It started getting worse really fast. They came back after a while and took me up to a room. And then they came back a little while later. Doctor came back and said, "Yeah, I'm afraid we're probably going to have to move you to the ICU." Okay. And they came back a little while later. Yeah, uh, we think we're going to put you in biological isolation. Oof. That's like hazmat suits and yeah double doors and airlock, like, the uh, like, holy crap. Okay. And then about a little before midnight, they came back and asked the question you never want to hear. And the doctor came in and said, uh, <clears throat> do we have permission to intubate you and do anything we need to do to preserve your life? I'm like, what? Yeah. Uh, okay. So then I went into meditation, it's a practice I've had all my life since I was a teenager. And as I went went into meditation, after a while, I could feel that my body and spirit were separating. It felt like a zipper. I could feel it coming apart, and I thought, holy crap. By that time, I was shaking, I I was physically crashing, and I took my phone. And I sent Joy a text. She was asleep because it was midnight almost, nearly midnight. And I barely—I got three lines out. First line said ICU. The second line—they hadn't moved me up, but they were going to ICU. The second line said isolation slash intubation. And the third line said I may be dying. She didn't see it. And shortly after that, I crashed. Code green, blue, red pink, whatever it is. Blue. Code blue. Code blue. Yeah. Code blue.
0: I watch a lot of medical shows, so yeah.
1: All right. So that, that happened. And a little while later, Joy got the phone call you never want to get, and the doc- nurse said to her, "It's like two or three in the morning, uh, are you coming? She said, what? And then she saw my text, right? So somewhere in there, my heart stopped, and I died. Um. <clears throat> I was in a coma for about 17 days, uh, but after I, my heart stopped, I died, I came to energetically, spiritually, and I was laying down like I was on the stretcher, and I sat up, and the room was gray, it, um, so like photocard gray, the walls and the ceiling and everything were just gray, it was a very soft gray, like, really a, like a flashback scene in a TV show, kind of. Yeah, it was all gray. Yeah. Everything was gray. And I was I now sitting up and uh, I couldn't really tell how big the room was because it was all gray. But I looked over my left shoulder and there was a door over there. And it didn't have a door in it, but it was a doorway. You know, a door jamb is a doorway. Yeah. And so I looked over there and I, I had this desire to be at the door. So then I was at the door, and I was leaning against the door jamb on my right shoulder, and my side of the door was gray, and I noticed the other side of the door was white. It wasn't streaming through. It was just white on that side and gray on my side. And I noticed that there was someone on the other side on, leaning on that door jamb, like right there across the door jamb. And uh, he looked at me, and he said, um, Do you want to come home? and like only in those kinds of places i knew where i was i knew what the door was i knew who i was talking to i knew all everything and the question hit me like a ton of bricks although it was just there and there was no expectation about how to answer it but there was also no question that it needed an answer And so we we talked for a while, and I thought about all the stuff I'd done for the last 11 years nearly. The other one happened in August. This was June, so not quite 11 years. And I thought, you know, I've done all these things, and I have so much more that we plan to do. And everything we've done, we just talked about it for a long time. And finally I said, "Um, I'm not done. You said, Okay. And I'm quite sure that that's when they were able to restart my heart. Yeah. Even though I didn't come out of the coma, I'm quite sure that's when they were able to restart my heart. So that was the first of three conversations. The next day, and people often ask, how did you know it was the next day? And the answer is, I have no idea. You just know that. Okay. So the next day, I'm we're back at the door. And... We're talking again, and this time the, the question of the previous day didn't come up. That was answered. And so he said, well, okay, you're going to stay, so what are you going to do? And like he said, you had more to do. What are you going to do? So we talked about my coaching practice and who I was trying to help and what I was trying to be in the world and all that stuff. And we talked about it at length. And uh, in terms of purpose and mission and all that kind of thing. And then I had an experience that the best way I can describe it is if you've seen that Jodie Foster movie called Contact. I haven't. It's on my list of things to watch because I'm a huge, yeah. for, like, pet person for those movies. But yeah, so you haven't seen it yet. No, I've heard right. many good things about it, though. Anyway, it, the aliens tell us how to build a spaceship, and we do. And it's not a spaceship; it's a thingy. And then they, this this vessel, drops through some kind of a weird field. Bottom line is, Jodie Foster's taken on a trip through the universe inside this ball. And I use that analogy just because that's the only thing I've ever seen that feels like it. I felt like I was inside of some kind of a protective bubble, I felt like I was on a trip. And I felt like if I hadn't been in that protective bubble, I would have been incinerated. And I felt like I was being fed with a fire hose um, and infused with sights and sounds and knowledge and just this glorious panorama of knowledge and sights and sounds and things just the universe in all of its splendor and when that was finished and i don't know how long it was it felt like a long time i was back at the doorway and four things were lots of stuff happened but four real important principles were really clear to me and it was think it wasn't new things but it was an affirmation in a way that is incomparable and the four things are this number one each one of us every single person is an intentional and divine creation we're here on purpose created to be here period number two is that each of us was in fact given gifts talents for our experience here Number three is that we also have a mission purpose that we not only agreed to, but we were stoked about before we came. And number four is that all the help we need is available from both sides of that door. And I thought about that for a while and I said, well, since that's true, why do we settle for crumbs?
0: I like and that, I like that.
1: Why, why do we settle for crumbs? And I don't know if in the economy of heaven, brevity is a virtue, but the answer was four words. Because you don't believe. And it hit me like a ton of bricks and I thought, face prompt, duh, I didn't say that. Okay, and I said, "All right, what can I do? What can I do to help with that?" Oh, glad you asked. So, what followed then was a long conversation, revelation about h- how we, ch- how it's possible to change the beliefs we have. Like we live in what I call a con. Each of us lives in a context. Straight jacket. And what I mean by that is the context is how we think life works. It's a collection of our beliefs and definitions and experiences and expectations and perceptions. And I love acronyms, so I created an acronym called BE Deep. So, your B deep creates this context straitjacket and it governs what you try, what you think is possible, what you think you can have, and all that stuff in, in your life. And, and so, the whole point of this part of the conversation was to share a way to change those fundamental beliefs so that you are able to believe different things, more empowering things, and then participate more fully in that mission and purpose you agreed to. Anyway, so when I got done with this whole experience, which I'll finish, I wrote Meeting God at the Door, which is the primary book, Conversations, Choices, and Commitments of a Near-Death Experience. And then I wrote the companion book called The Book of Context, because the rest of that second conversation was, number one, too long and kind of off-topic for the whole experience itself. So I wrote them as companion books and it's called, not surprisingly, the book of context. And it was funny because when I wrote the book of context, I had a client who's a retired physician in Baltimore. I asked him to write the forward and he did. He wrote a very nice forward and said some nice things, blah, blah, blah. But he spent an hour trying to convince me to change the name of the book he said you know if you'd written the book of joy or the book of love or something we'd understand it but the book of context and i patiently waited for him to talk tell me all the reasons when he got done i smiled and i looked at him i said mort the name is not negotiable (laughs) you know the name is the name it's what it is right and then he got it and he left so anyway that's just a funny story about the book actually that makes the name that makes sense to me like yeah yeah. well it didn't make sense to him and it doesn't matter that was the name the book of context right so that's what uh that's how it was given so anyway that was the that was the end of the second of three conversations and it was quite long and it had many parts and all that like that and the third day uh we're back at the door and i was really excited i was buzzing with excitement i was repeating all the stuff in my mind uh, you know that i learned and the framework and context and the things that i'd seen i was just kind of like like somebody sitting on one of those bouncy balls you know i'm like yeah buzzing and i'm back at the door and the third day was just one question again he looked at me and he said uh, are you sure And I, and I sort of almost like hyperventilated, you know, I, th- I thought, what do you mean? Am I sure? Am I stupid? Am I missing something? Am I biting off more than I can chew? What do you mean? Am I sure? Like what? You know, and I, and uh, so we talked about it from every possible angle. Am I biting off more than I can chew? Can I really do this? Am I missing something? You know, all that stuff. And Finally, after a while, I said, no, I'm, I'm sure. And so he said, okay. And uh, nothing was said about being done, but the conversation ended with a finality that I knew we were done. So that was the end of the conversation, the third one, the last one. And then some 14 days later, I uh, came out of the coma and um, the first thing I did when I came to was I was uh, blubbering in my barely coherent state about context and telling the nurses and everybody all this stuff, right, that had happened. And I thought for sure they would think I was insane. But not really, because several days later, when I was leaving the ICU finally, to go back to the regular part of the hospital, the infectious disease doctor that had been in charge of my treatment asked me, in all seriousness, he said, "I, I I need you to tell me what you saw. And I'd been blubbering about it now for days. And so I did, we talked about it and stuff like that, but apparently it was striking enough for him to ask that question and so forth. So that was the end of that experience. Um, <clears throat> by itself, there was an epilogue to that experience. Well, before you get to the epilogue, let let's let me ask some questions I got
0: that are burning in my head. because Go for it. Dive if,
1: in. We'll get to the epilogue later.
0: Yeah. The suspense is the best gift you can give your listeners. But uh, oh, well, there's an epilogue. <laughs> go. go going back to the first day when you were in this gray hazy place did was there there's only one door right there wasn't two like, like we were, we're always told there's two doors when you go so that you have choices if, if you get a choice
1: but well i did have choice go through or stay back I mean, the question was, do you want to come home? So I had choice. There was no question about that.
0: I mean, I guess, okay, maybe I should say three choices then. But not everybody gets the choice to come back. But at least from what we're told. And I mean, this whole this whole story as an agnostic person, as an agnostic man, is just, comp- like, stories like this blow me away. And It's just like, maybe, maybe, maybe I should start considering things. I
1: don't know. <laughs> but... I'm not telling the story to convince anybody of anything. What I what it does for me, for in, in the context of talking to you, is look. Every person breathing air knows that at times we feel this intuitive pull to do things, to follow a path, to do this or to do that. And sometimes, often we ignore it. I'd ignored those yearnings all my life up until 2007, when the divine intervention was so loud it was a two by four and it was really time to make a decision to change and so the invitation my experience is all the interactions with the divine are always issued in the form of invitations nobody's ever made to do anything it's an invitation Uh, i could have said no back when i got sober i said yes uh and so the the element of agency is always seems to be the rules of the framework always allowed hmm. so but
0: when you said no i want to stay did the possibility run through your head that maybe you only get one chance to get in there and then that, that you're supposed to go in there and that's it and then after that your chances are
1: ruined no and i'll tell you why as a coach when you, when you do the profession as a coaching or shrink or any of those people that talk for a living, they talk about the, the, the concept and they give it a name, it's called holding space. And that's kind of a woo woo thing that means creating a safe place for things to be discussed. And right. Yeah. And so what I can say is I knew the question needed an answer but never in any universe has there been space held like was in that place it was benign it was soft it was i needed there was an answer that needed to happen and i didn't i mean i had to say yes or no because you know they were busy jumping up and down on my chest and doing whatever and so the it was but it was not in any way threatening or negative in fact quite the contrary because of the whole religious discipline and beatings and all the crap I got, I'd always carried this feeling that the idea of meeting the divine is, Oh man, I was horrified. I sucked. I knew it. I'd been all this other stuff. And what was notable about the whole thing, I didn't even really think about it until later about the whole experience was so remarkable because of the absence of any of that sort of feeling. It was, it was just there. And there was a choice to make. It was an important choice, but it was a choice. And there were things to do either way. Do you want to come home? Yeah, which- And it was an opportunity for me to decide if I was done here or not. Yeah, which I mean,
0: I had to think some people would gladly just say, I want to go home. Like I'm done. I, I give up, which I got, I got to say your, your past, your childhood, the way you talk about it reminds me of my best friend. I lived with in New York for years before I moved to Massachusetts and he had the same exact childhood as you, six or seven brothers and sisters. And his father just was a merciful, abusive person all in the name of Christianity. But mm-hmm. so
1: yeah. 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 It's like we'll beat you, beat you, and later you'll thank me later. I mean, I actually heard that you'll thank me later and all that crap. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and his stories always made me just shudder. And hearing your story kind of just made me brought back that feeling for the first time since he he died in 2018, 2019, somewhere around there. But he was going through a rough time as well at that point. He just passed, but in a house fire, in a, a trailer fire. But anyway, I mean, it's just your story is just uplifting and i mean to have a conversation with anything like that with any kind of divine being like that is what every agnostic person even atheist people need to like that's what they're looking for most of them that i know and i've talked to about it they're looking for that sign that someone actually cares and someone is there to listen and to hear things and to talk back to you
1: Well, it's certainly not something I ever expected and certainly not something I ever felt I, you know, deserved or anything like that. I don't think that has anything to do with it. Uh, At least that's not the impression I had. It was, it felt like I'd had this thing 11 years before where I'd made a choice to radically change my life and to completely be a different person. I mean, like the person you see now and the person 15 years ago, right this minute, in June of 2007 were worlds apart. You know, I was a w- wealthy, arrogant, selfish, addicted, f- lie, you know, everything, fill in the blank. And I, I accepted the invitation to simply radically change. It didn't do the work for me. I mean, I had to get sober. I had to do the thing. I had to, take had to talk to a million people spend million, I had to do all the work it wasn't done just like when i this experience in the coma i lost 35 pounds i was so weak i couldn't walk i couldn't get out of bed when i first started trying to learn to walk again i had to literally lift my legs out of bed with my arms they still work but my legs didn't when i stood up i had to clutch this great big thing that looked like a tackling dummy on wheels to hold it and shuffle around the room So I, I completely atrophied all my muscles in the three weeks I was gone and I could, I couldn't do anything. And so I, and I, that didn't miraculously heal. I had to do the work to gradually recover. And there's been, I believe I've been blessed. I know I have, because when I left the hospital, I asked him, I'd always been in really good shape in my life. There was no time when I couldn't hit the floor and do 40 pushups. I've been a Martial artist, second-degree black belt in a couple of styles, blah, 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 competitive stuff. So to be completely flatlined physically was scary. I was scared to death. So I asked the doctor later when I left the hospital, I said, well, will I ever get my lungs back? And he said two things. He said, your lungs have been so badly damaged, number one, if you ever get an infection, a fever, not an infection. He said, if you ever get a fever... Ever. It's 911 for you. You cannot have that ever again. Anything. And number two, I asked him, Well, will I ever get my lungs back? And he said, Two years to never. So the, the work, and I feel like it's been four years now, and I'm blessed. And I I'm physically healthy. I can do stuff. I can ride my bike. I can actually do things. So it's way better than i ever imagined it could possibly be but i've done the work yeah to get to get there there was no magic about that to to make any of that happen so the invitations are what they are but uh there's no royal road <laughs> to anything No, no of course not and that's
0: actually what i've been wanting to ask is i, I keep forgetting to ask it, but now i just remember that now. Did they ever say what
1: you actually had when you were? Yes. That's why the days mattered. I said day one, two, three, four, five. I went in the hospital on day five and the doctor told me later, they didn't find out, figure out what I had till the end of day eight, which was Monday. What I had was a necrotizing MRSA uh, superbug in both lungs and in my bloodstream. And the doctor told me, like we talked with COVID at 10% or 2% mortality rate, right? Two to 3%. Yeah. He told me that the 10-day mortality rate of what I had was 100%. Damn. I said, so, of course you died. I mean, it kills people. They didn't, they didn't figure out what I had till the end of day eight. And by then, this, all, all this had already happened. And when I got to the hospital and they did all, and I did go code and they uh, stuffed me full of tubes and everything else, they put me, they didn't know what I had, but they put me on every antibiotic known to man. And I guess there's something called the antibiotic of last resort. I didn't know there was such a thing, but yeah, there is. You Google it. <laughs> there is. It's called the antibiotic of last resort. Uh, anyway, they had me on that and some other stuff in, in hopes of doing anything. I mean, I, I was gone. So, yeah, that's why the days mattered. Uh, I didn't get to the hospital till day five in, in the progression of that. And it was, uh, yeah, necrotizing MRSA, antibiotic-resistant super, antibiotic superbug in both lungs in my bloodstream. And it was so aggressive that when they had tubes in my neck, it attacked the tubing. And they had to take the tubing out of one side of my neck, throw it all away, and start over and put it in the other side.
0: yeah i mean it's just that's oh necrotizing i mean necro which is the latin for death is right there in the title so yeah yeah definitely i would imagine that'd be definitely disease just by hearing the name of it but yeah so but,
1: that's what it was and they you know all kinds of questions where did you go in eastern europe here there and everywhere because it i wasn't contagious it's very difficult to get uh so it's not like transmissible easily it's hard to get and it's fatal do they, do they ever have any idea where you caught it? Or, I mean, I was in a bunch of Eastern European cities. We went to St. Petersburg, which of course will never happen again, but we went to Helsinki and uh, Oslo and St. Petersburg and Tallinn, Estonia, which is in you know on the northern part of the Baltic Sea, the Baltic States there. And yeah. Some other stuff, and I, you know, we did all the sightseeing stuff in all those places, and you know, who knows.
0: Yeah, it could have been a lot of different places, but yeah, I've got I've been on a lot of cruises when I was a child, but never got to go to Europe, and I was always regret that I haven't gone there yet. But someday, maybe once all this craziness calms down, which yeah, brings me my next question: How did so during COVID? I'm guessing you were pretty much shut in for a long time.
1: We have been. I haven't. I part of my coaching business is I speak. I traveled and did a lot of speaking. Um, before the near-death, and I have after that also. But I spoke, motivational speaking, uh, conferences, that sort of thing, and I haven't done any of that for nearly two and a half years since February. I, I do now have some speaking engagements the rest of this year, a couple in September and a couple in October. So I'm planning on starting that again, but we have done. But I was running all my coaching business online before. I, I was using Zoom before anybody ever heard of it. Yeah i was doing my coaching but my clients are all over the world i have clients in australia mexico canada u.s europe all over the place yeah that's a
0: that's an impressive roster for being a coach for damn sure but and so all three times you're at the door and after this question i'll let you get to the epilogue but all three questions all three times you're at the door you never saw like what the person, what this creature looked like, right? This divine being, you know, I so...
1: absolutely so. What they looked like, they looked exactly like a person. Uh, I'm not saying that's the only manifestation the divine can have. Some people have asked, "How did you know it was God?" I, you just know those things. It Didn't have a name badge on. Hi, my name is God. You know, no, but you you just had a sense and a knowledge that you were in the presence of the divine. It looked just—and it didn't it didn't look like some old dude with a beard, but it was clearly in the f- form of a person, and it felt very familiar.
0: Did it look like Morgan uh, Freeman?
1: No, it did not <laughs> look <laughs> like Morgan Freeman. I always have to ask that when I have people that I, have met I Totally, I get it, and I expect that, and it's a funny question. George Burns played Oh God, right? In yeah. the older movies, oh God. But anyway, so no, but it was clearly uh in the manifestation of a person. It looked like a person. I was talking to a person, and it was clearly without speaking or name badges or anything. I was in the presence of the creator, the divine, and there's no. there would be no hesitation in saying that.
0: Yeah, which well, that's why I didn't ask, how do you know it was God? Because I've heard enough of these from people I've interviewed just to hear them say, like, you know it's just the way it is like
1: you it's, just know
0: yeah which i mean i've also i also had some of my podcasts who met the devil three times he believes and and he and he said the same thing for that you just know you get a sense which if, if I, I imagine it has to be true if you get a sense both ways like ultimate evil versus ultimate good is always going to be you just feel it in your soul like what's going
1: on well you know we came from somewhere we have an energetic essence we know that the body is just a container we just know that too right
0: which when you say that the first thing you said the first step the, the, the first of four points you said was that we all come and we have a purpose and we know that purpose and we were excited about it before we came do you mean before we, like in the great beyond, before we're born, we know what the purpose is? Or like like an alien type way where we came from another planet?
1: How it's sent, the sense that I had is that we existed for I don't know how many eons as individuals, as who we are now. We were somewhere else before we were here. So we had, and as a spirit, as whatever that thing is. So let's just pretend that there's a spirit it's made out of something else that's in the body. And we feel that, like if someone says, where's your consciousness? Well, you don't think of it being in your left kneecap. You know, no. we have a sense that it's somewhere, you know? And, and we, so we kind of know that. So that energetic essence was somewhere and had a period of time with the creator. And in that process, yeah we developed and and we were given an opportunity to come here and we said, I want to go and we were given gifts and a a mission and purpose. And we said, I'm I'm in, I want to go. I don't believe we were forced to come here. I think we chose it and we were given the assignments. And I don't know why it was set up that we don't remember that really clearly. We just have these inklings that, 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 that happened. You know, we feel, that things happened before and flashes and stuff. But the truth of that, that we were somewhere, we were we had were gifts, we had a mission, we had a purpose, we might we knew each other. One of the things that happened with my wife, Joy, in that amazing experience, she knew, and she was not even a religious person. She would she was raised sort of Ukrainian Orthodox and but that's so uh, this Ukraine thing is really front and center for her for us because her dad was born in Odessa and she's Ukrainian so first generation but anyway, she said um, she knew to the core of her soul that this was this was hers to do. To, to accept that invitation to to go with me and to to help create this thing. And, you know, pe- some people call it a soul contract and some people call it whatever they call it. But that she knew that. And like, she wasn't even like woo-woo or weird or anything, but somehow she knew, this is what I need to do. Which,
0: I, I mean, I'm a high believer in fate. I believe we're all we're destined to die at a certain point in life. We're destined to do certain things in life. And we just don't know it until it happens. I'm a, I'm a huge believer in that, even if I'm not religious by any means. I have, I'm have i a huge believer in fate. And I mean, a lot of times I do things that aren't the smartest because I say, if I'm destined to die today, I'm destined to die today. I can't change that. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, my, my wife gets my case about that all the time, but <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> tell me to slow down the highway. If I'm destined to die today, I'll die today. <laughs> But yeah, and oh, I had something I just thought of. What the? Oh well, the whole that your whole explanation for that made me think of reincarnation in a way, because you hear, because like we all like reincarnation just brings up the point that maybe once we pass in a previous life, our souls are sitting like in a waiting room, and the ones that want to go back out go back out, the ones that don't can just
1: stay. I'm not going to pretend to be knowledgeable or to have deep secrets about all that process. It's clear to me that we we have had existence before this, whether it was here as another body, like some people talk about or somewhere else in a spirit form. Like, I don't know, I'm not going to claim all that, but I know it's clear to me that we were somewhere, we had experiences, we brought them with us. We don't remember all of it, but there's continuity in that when this frame ends, we, we go somewhere else. Inter- yeah, which I I
0: am also a believer in reincarnation because I I just I, I am just because I I've, I've heard too many stories and like you can't de- de- debunk all these stories like some of them are just like how would a kid know this about a past life like how would they know
1: uh, you know I yeah I agree we were somewhere and we go somewhere the form and shape of that you know some people speculate we come back as people or animals or whatever there's something there's something to it we have an energetic past and an energetic future yeah well
0: all I can say is I hope all those guys that hunt elephants and lions get to come back as antelopes in
1: the prairie <laughs> but <laughs> for their turn all right well then the so the epilogue you've you've yes. uh, you've alluded to that so I went home in July uh from the hospital and I had to learn to walk again and all the rest and by October I'd written both those books so I wrote them quickly and then I went out to do some speaking and I had four places to go speak in October and it was hard cause I could walk, but with struggle. Uh, and then in November when I got back, I might started to have back pain, lower back pain. And I hadn't been a, I'd been a very healthy person, but was still in recovery and it just got worse and worse. And finally, on December the 5th, I woke up on the morning of December 5th and I was paralyzed from the waist down. I got out of bed and fell on my face. I tried to get up on my hands and knees and fell on my face. And the only direction of motion that was available to me was down. So I crawled around on my hands, I'm not my hands and knees, but my arms a little bit and Joy was there and we're like, holy crap, what do we do? And finally we decided, I guess the only thing to do is call 911. So we called the paramedics and they came and I was in terrible pain and paralyzed. And so it's like, okay, I just, Four months ago, five months ago, I got out of the hospital with this death experience and like enough already, right? So I, nobody knew what was wrong. They loaded me in the back of the ambulance and I'd never actually ridden to the hospital in an ambulance before, that was the first time. So we're on the way to the ambulance and I'm in really bad pain and I had this vision. And the vision was, I was like, it's one of those poker games like, you know, after football games, sometimes they have the World Series of yeah. Poker. Yeah. Okay, it was like that. The room is kind of purpley, black, and lights and stuff, and I'm at a poker table with people, and it's first person, so I'm seeing through my own eyes, and there are people around it. And then I realized that the person right across from me was the Grim Reaper in full regalia. And I thought, oh, I was terrified. I thought, holy crap. You know, I'm, I'm 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 on a stretcher, paralyzed in the waist down in pain, having this vision. And then everybody else at the table just sort of faded. And we're and I couldn't see the face of the hood was hanging, but you know, there it is. And so you talk about knowing like you just know. I thought, holy mother of God, there it is. And so and then we're, and we're it's poker, right? It chips and chips, and there, and I didn't see cards, but Reaper reached down and did that motion, mm-hmm. the motion they do, and they push all the chips in the middle, right? And it yeah. just scared the daylights out of me. I thought, I, and I thought, okay, what do you, what do you do if, normally you'd say your adversary. But what came in my mind was, what do you do when the adversary raises the stakes? And what came to me is, well, if you're, if the adversary raises the stakes, you only have two choices. You fold or you fall. Yep. And uh, I was in pain, I, and I couldn't move, but I raised my arm. The only thing I could move. I slammed it on the stretcher as hard as I could and screamed at the top of my lungs. Then I call. And then it evaporated. And so what happened, and they went to the hospital and they did a bunch of x-rays and an MRI, and then they sent the MRI to the the surgeon that was on call, spinal surgeon, and he took one look at it and said take him to the operating room we're operating right now. So they took me from the ER to the OR. And what happened was that MRSA necrotizing MRSA had not been completely eradicated. So it had migrated into my side, my spine and created an abscess about four inches long that had begun to calcify and was putting pressure on my spinal column. So it was between C2 and T1, which is clear up here at the top of the neck. Yeah, and and had paralyzed me, so they operated. They did a laminectomy and cleaned it all out. And um, I left the hospital. It was December the fifth. I left on the fourteenth. So ten days later, and and I looked like Stegosaurus. I had this big bunch of really really big and deep stitches up on my neck, and the, there's a big scar back there, a big groove, still like a deep. But anyway, when I went back on the 27th, a couple of weeks later to have the stitches out, the doctor looked at me and he said, shook his head and he said, I can't tell you. He says, I can tell you. I can count on less than one hand. The number of people that have come into the hospital like you did and then walked out under their own power. He said, there's just, I don't, I said, I don't know. So anyway, then they put a pick line in. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a, it's a line they put in under your right arm, and it goes through your veins and into your heart. Mm-hmm. And they do that to administer antibiotics that are too strong to put in anything else. So yeah. For six, for six weeks, I had to carry around a pump, which isn't fun <laughs> at, yeah, at all. And they so they but so here's the reason that matters, and this goes back to what happened in the summertime. Uh, so I carried around a pump for six weeks, and they were pumping me full of crap to get this all out of me. So I went across the street from the hospital to get my first load of antibiotics after I'd gone home. And I went in there, and I went to the outpatient pharmacy, and I started to say who I was. I'm here to pick up my antibiotics. I got this pump, and I blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, my name is – and the nurse, who I didn't know from anything, she looked at me, and she, she said, oh, we know who you are. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, we know. And so they were referring back to the summertime. Yeah, what had happened. And so apparently what I said and what I told them was um, enough that that was this is five months later. Like, oh, yeah, we know who you are. And it just freaked me out. But it also humbled. I, I, you know, it was emotional. And I thought, holy crap. Okay. And it reinforced two things. One, that it was a serious choice. You want to come home? No, I'm staying. Well, that doesn't mean that whatever negative forces there are, call it whatever you want, aren't out to disrupt the plan. Of course not. Because this was all in. One more time. All in, right? And I thought, holy crap. And the doctor, I told you, he said, I just can't figure out whatever. And they knew so that's the rest of the story and that spawned a third book not surprisingly named walking without fear Ooh, I, you are good with names i'll give you that <laughs> all right so that's the epilogue and that happened five months after the original experience
0: wow i stories like this just they humble everybody because it's like you think you've been through stuff and you haven't been through anything like that in your life most people
1: haven't at least well, I don't think there's anything special about me at all. I know that every single person, you and everybody else that listens to this, you're a divine being. You have gifts and talents. You have a calling and mission and purpose. I got hit with a two by four, so I'd wake up and change my life. And my mission and purpose now for this year, is I've said, I'm going to help 10 million people in 2022 discover, develop, and serve with their divine gifts. And that's all I do on your show, books I write, music I write, po- coaching things I do summits i speak at that's all it's about helping people understand who they really are and what's possible
0: yeah and you said you have a podcast of
1: your own too right i do it's called your ultimate life and i'm nearly on episode 700 oh my god (laughs) your ultimate life and on that
0: podcast you just do what you describe basically right you try to help people find what their purpose is
1: yeah, it's, it's, I've defined it. Your ultimate life is the life of purpose, prosperity, and joy that you create by serving with your divine gifts. So I have some guests and I do some solo rants, but it's all focused on how to create that ultimate life by serving with your divine gifts. We're built to love and serve each other. We're not built to do anything else and everything else we do is okay. You know, if you want to get rich or do this, fine, but we're built to love and serve each other. That's what we're built to do. Hmm. Well,
0: I got to say, you you remind me of one of my co-hosts on one of my podcasts, uh, Harvey Gare. He has a podcast called Men Are the Prize. I-, I know him.
1: I don't think I've been on his show, but he I think he's on my schedule. I have a gal that does this for me, and Men Are the Prize rings a bell. Ding, ding, ding,
0: ding. I was going to say, because if you haven't been on a show, you really should. It's or It, it seems like it'd be right up your alley, too. Well, then, great.
1: I think I'm mentor the prize. I think that's on the schedule somewhere.
0: Right, I'll have will ask him in the group chat when we get up, when I get off this, I'm sure. Because I, I feel like he was on your comment on the post about you as well, it's like I did. So I think we both got you at the same time. But wow, I mean, the, your story is miraculous, and I am so honored to hear it and to be able to put it out there in the world 100%
1: thank you for the work you do thank you for the good that you're doing and i want to assure every one of your listeners that you're important and no matter what's happened to you before it's never too late to have a big impact and to do something good to matter as you choose to live into your divine purpose there's it's never too late
0: well there you go listeners a good lesson for today and this episode will be dropping in a week and a half on the 29th so it'll be a it's gonna be one of my bonus episodes because I am booked up through September for my regular episodes, but bonus episodes I like to release for my listeners just to give them a little something extra every once in a while. Because you gotta, you gotta do you gotta do good things for your listeners that they're willing to give time and help you raise yourself in the world.
1: Absolutely.
0: 100 percent But and I love it. And I thank you for having having you on, Callan. It
1: was an amazing time. You're welcome. And if anybody wants to see anything, I have a uh, gift but it's about fear so li- live without fear live without fear.ca there's something there about learning to live without fear if that's of interest to anyone and i'm actually i meant to ask this
0: have you ever considered possibly selling movie rights to your life like because your story
1: would make one hell of a movie you know, I, I've been told that before, and I have never pursued it. So, like, tried to write the screenplay or, or even talk to someone about it, but it would. There's certainly, you know, the, the kinds of things that a life I lived before and the change and everything. Absolutely. It would be interesting and fun, but the answer is not yet. <laughs> oh, well, I have a few ideas for actors that could play you easily, but... <laughs> <laughs>
0: Michael Keaton, maybe, maybe Michael Keaton. I could see that. I could see that. But he had he, the same, the same face, almost in a way. I mean, I could see it. But I'm not going into that because that will bring me down rabbit hole that will take an hour of me talking about
1: movies. <laughs> but <laughs> I thank you for being on. And is there any other
0: socials or anything
1: else you want to give to listeners? You know, with a name like Kellen Flukiger, you can't hide. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Amazon. I've got 16 books. Google me. There's thousands of references because of my executive career and my coaching stuff. But the website, I had no trouble getting my website. There was no competition. There are only two Kellen Flukigers in the world, and the other one's my son. So I was going to say that my website. Any any way you want to connect, please do. I'd be happy to have a conversation and see how I can help you.
0: Well, great to hear. Sounds we got a good man here, folks. Feel free to reach out to him if you think you, you you need his help, which I'm sure a lot of us do, actually, because I know I, for one, could use all the help I can get. So thank you. All my listeners, you know, go to the paranormal, the new normal Facebook group, and you see me post all my five podcasts there. So, and every podcast I guest on, which is usually a couple weekly. So <laughs> I am a busy man, but thank you for listening. And I will see you in a couple of days when the episode releases on Saturday.